so Saban is again making fun of my manliness. He walks by and, he, and I'm like, and he's all, oh, it looks heavier than it is. I tell you, every week I tell you, I'm huge. Look at me. So we had a softball game this week. Don't cheer. We, we lost. Yeah, but it, that's right. We came from ahead. We were like ahead like 10 runs. And we lost. That is how good we are. But it wasn't my fault this time, right? I was not even in the field when those 10 runs scored. I was on the bench going, oh. not that I could have done any better because I'm not any better. Uh, Thanksgiving is a holiday. Okay. Uh, we are doing this thing for Thanksgiving where we have taken three homes uh, in our community from people. Next year, we'll probably switch that around and do other homes and stuff. But this year, we, pick, we got these three homes. And we want to have all of you guys go to one of those. Yeah, okay. So this is what we're going to do. Uh, in the back, i got this sign-up sheet. And it's got, like, your name and a place for an email address, phone number, zip code, so we know where you're at. So we have, like, two homes in Orchid, one in Santa Maria. And we are going to have all of you guys. So it's not like you don't show up and it's just, like, you and the people who own the house. And you're going to be, like, awkward. Okay. But you can invite your friends. We, we want a lot of people to get together in these three homes. There's like a lot of people, a lot of community that's outside of Element proper. Okay, And we're out there and you guys are meeting together, and which kind of gives you a push almost towards small groups at some point because you guys will be in somebody's home hanging out, doing stuff. Your job is, one, to sign up, two, to bring something to share. Uh, the main course of the meal will actually be there. So you're going to bring drinks or... Drinks, sides of some sort, no pickles, um, sides of some sort like uh, what? Mashed, no mashed potatoes. Cranberry sauce in the can, not the real stuff. It's got to be in the shape of a can. If it's, if it's not in the shape of a can, it doesn't taste good, okay? It's, gotta, it's, it's the stuff with all that's pasteurized and like, you know, with the horse hooves in it and everything, the solid, that's what we want. You know, the really bad stuff for you. The worse it is for you, the better it tastes. So and bring, bring us mashed potatoes, you know, whatever. So, something to share for somebody else. Huh? Green bean casserole. I hear you make really good food, so you can bring something. Some of it's not a green bean casserole because I'm not into green beans either. No mashed potatoes, no green beans. Uh, bring whatever you want just to share it with other people. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to help you guys get to know each other a little bit, know us a little bit. It'll be a whole lot of fun. So sign up. I want everybody to go. Am I clear? All right, I want everybody to go. I don't care if it's your first time, sign up and then never come again, but you can be like, I'll get free food this night. That's cool. Just just go and do it. Uh, as Tyler said, uh, apparently we have one veteran in the room. <laughs> but, you know, it, it doesn't matter how you feel about war. Uh, veterans, we need to honor them because this is why we have the freedom that we do. And so today is one of those days to do that. So apparently you're the dude, so everybody say, Why don't you guys stand there reading God's word? I hurt my elbow playing softball. It's killing me. This is Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 19. It says this, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Let's pray. 
Father, help us to be a people who understand the things that you tell us through Scripture, how to take the ideas of this bride and groom and light and dark and branch and vine and, and put these together into what you call us to be. God, we ask that you would truly help us to be your people who live on mission with purpose. And no matter if we're living in Indonesia or Santa Maria, California, God, that you would help us to be those who live in such a way that people see you through us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. It's like week number 8, so like I said, that's how it's going to go. I think I'm, I've almost done written all of John, which will probably take us through July next year. You're like, holy cow, <laughs> what's he going to talk about? I don't know. It's great. John, John is a gospel. It is written to Greeks, which probably means nothing to you except that I keep telling you this. That, so John likes to use metaphors. He uses you know, light and dark and branch and vine. You know, today he's going to use the illustrations of bride and groom. Last week, uh, earlier in John chapter 3, we looked at Jesus' discussion with a guy named Nicodemus. And now John shows that Nicodemus is in the dark. And so he comes to Jesus who is in the light. And Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus talks about being born again. He talks about the Spirit of God, the wind in terms of God's Spirit. And it is very deep and it is very theological. It is full of meaning and beauty and truth. And after this discussion last week, what John does is he takes a short little detour. Anybody watch TV? Okay, just check. What, TV? What? Now? Yeah. Okay. Anybody watch movies? Anybody go, ever go see a movie? Okay. What they do in good TVs or movies, I won't ask about books because you guys will be like, what's that book? Okay. But in TVs and movies and books, what makes a good one is that they have more than one storyline kind of going on. It's why you see when people go on a, on a, in a book or a movie or, or TV, they, they go like on a quest and then they split the main characters up. Right? You ever see Lord of the Rings? And it's like, why the heck is Frodo Baggins crawling over the mountains of doom? And this guy's over here having all the fun. It's like, I don't get it. But they split them up because there's multiple storylines. makes it a little more interesting. At this point, this is where John is. He kind of employs this method a little bit. Because you have, it's kind of like the Star Wars fade, right to left. Okay, and over here, this is what is happening over here. So you have this whole story about Jesus and Nicodemus. And all of a sudden, John takes a quick little detour. John 3, verse 22. This is where we're at. Okay? Story's going to unfold. Finney's with John. The rest of the story of Jesus. Verse 22. After this, this is the after this of where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, where he talks about God's spirit being like wind, uh, where he talks about being born again, uh, Jesus being the light of the world. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Oh, that's nice. Jesus gets a vacation. He gets to go in the countryside. Oh, that, that's, that's beautiful. We're told in the next chapter that actually it's not Jesus who baptizes, but his disciples. Because imagine you were baptized by Jesus. You'd be like, well, Jesus baptized me. I don't know who baptized Jesus. And people get a big head, so Jesus didn't do that. He has disciples do that. Now, Jesus, what he does is he speaks about God's redemptive work to Nicodemus. And the very next thing he does is he goes into the wilderness. Anybody know why? No, it's because where the people are. That's where the people are. You see, Jesus, he goes to the temple, he goes to festivals, he goes to parties, and he goes in the wilderness, big body of water. People like water. Apparently in the hot Middle East, we like water. And so he goes, it's where the people are. Jesus is constantly going where people are. 
because he wants to reach the most people possible. And so what he does is he takes his students, he trains them, he disciples them, he helps them to understand how to walk in the ways of God, and he's reaching the most people possible. Now, on the other side of this, you have John the disciple. He starts switching stories and talks about John the Baptist. And these two things relate together. Verse 23. Now, John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim. So, Jesus is baptizing. John is baptizing. Because there was plenty of water. And people were constantly coming to be baptized. And then, in parentheses, this was before John was put in prison. Okay. So, John's gospel. 90% of John's gospel is unique to John's gospel. And don't, don't think that I think you're dumb or anything, but I just want to explain this to you, give a little bit of background. Uh, there's four accounts of the life of Jesus. This is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the accepted accounts of the first century. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, accepted by all the churches in that time. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so similar. They're so similar that some people think that these more details of Matthew and Luke actually borrowed from Mark. So they say, well, Mark must have been the first one written. Now, which isn't odd because Luke actually tells you. Luke, Luke's like, well, I talked to all these people, I read all these things, it does, and then I compiled my account. So Luke actually says he did this. But it makes other people look at this and they say, oh, well, Matthew, Matthew and Luke got from Mark. Ooh, collusion. Aha! See, we can't trust the Bible, which is, which is totally nuts. Um, Matthew, they say that Matthew and Luke borrowed from a mystery document that we don't have. They take all the common sayings of Matthew and Luke and they say we got this from a mystery document called Q for all you Star Trek geeks, okay? I guess there is none of you in this room. All right, so <laughs> this document called the Q. We don't have this. It's just like, well, these sayings are similar, so we're going to say they came out of something else. That's the accepted theory. Aha! They say, oh, collusion. Matthew and Luke have no originality. Blah, 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 whatever. Okay. What has happened most recently, which I think is really interesting and fascinating, is that Matthew uses so many Hebrew idioms in his writing that people are now starting to say, Matthew was probably written in Hebrew and was translated into Greek. That, and that, would make, that would make Matthew actually the earliest gospel written. If Matthew was written in Hebrew, translated into Greek, we actually have fragments of the gospel of Matthew written all the way back to AD 45 right now, which places it very, very early, which you guys are going, I don't care, it's fascinating, but great. I personally think Matthew was probably the first gospel written just because I'm nostalgic that way and, and I like him. But there's lots of debate about that. On the other side of this, you have John. John is the last gospel written. There is no debate on that whatsoever. Everybody agrees John is the last gospel written. John spent most of his life being a pastor, planting churches, discipling followers, putting down heresies. Didn't leave much time for actually writing. So when John finally gets around to it, it's, it's great. He's later in life. You know, and I, I still think that John and Revelation were both written probably before 70 AD, if that means anything to you whatsoever. But when John starts to write his gospel, word gets out. Jesus' best friend is going to write a gospel account. How great is that? This is, this is wonderful. And so most early church fathers look at this section of scripture because it deals with John the Baptist. Now, the, the baptizer is this love figure throughout church history and history as a whole. All the other gospel accounts, Jesus gets baptized, and the next thing you see John the Baptist do, gets his head chopped off. It's like, oh, well, that's not convenient. What happened there? And it's like, so where, what happened in that interim time? Many early church fathers believed that when they heard John was writing his gospel, people came to John and they said, can you write something else about John the baptizer? So we know what he was doing between the time that Jesus uh, got baptized and the time that John got his head chopped off. Could you do that? So John says, sure. 
and he starts to write this, which I think is really funny because John now just takes this opportunity to write about John the baptizer just so he can talk more about Jesus, which I think is, is very funny. So John, he starts like this, and he goes, you know what John the Baptist was doing between the time that he got his head chopped off and baptized Jesus? Anybody know what he was doing? Baptizing. That's what he did. It's like he went to college, and that's all he learned how to do was baptize. He's got one thing. You know, got a resume. What you do? I baptized. What else? I ate bugs and sugar. You know, that, that's, that's all he's got. He just baptizes. That's the only thing he does. So John baptizes. Verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. If you were here in chapter 1, you realize John's baptizing. They come and they go, what are you doing? They're asking him questions. They're saying, you know, what are you doing? Why are you allowed to do this? You're a priest kid. What's going on? This is the whole idea. Which rituals are the best? But this question is now asked because there's an argument between a Jew who's coming and Jesus is baptizing and John is baptizing. So the Jew comes and he says, okay, well, which baptism is better, Jesus or John's? And he comes and he asks John. And that's a very, very valid question because if John says Jesus' baptism is better, then why is John still baptizing? Wouldn't he just stop and let Jesus do it all? Chrysostom, who was an early church father, uh, he writes this. He says he did so, continued baptizing, because he did not want to excite his own disciples to an even stronger rivalry than there already was between the two. He, that's John the baptizer, even if he proclaimed Christ 10,000 times and given him the chief place, making himself more inferior, he would still not have been able to persuade all of his disciples to run to Christ. In fact, they would have most likely become more hostile. Chrysostom actually believes why you see in the Gospels that Jesus doesn't really start preaching in the other Gospels until John gets his head chopped off. He doesn't really start preaching because these people have their loyalties divided. And after John dies, their hearts can then be fully committed to Jesus. Chrysostom writes this, The reason I think why John's death was permitted was so that people might transfer their affections entirely to Christ. Now, I got an, an analogy for you. Okay, bring this to like modern day. You're going to be totally amazed. All right. There, in the 1980s, 80s rock music, okay, there's this band. They were called Van Halen. Okay. Everybody go, woo. Okay. All right. Van Halen. Now, when Van Halen starts, okay, they, they come on the scene, and, they, and here's the picture of them at the very beginning. Okay. This guy over on the right with the, with the blonde hair, that's David Lee Roth. He looks like a girl, but he's a dude. Okay. That's David Lee Roth. They make lots of albums. They become super group. Okay, super group status. They're playing arenas. They're gigantic. And all of a sudden, David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen, the band, they have this issue. So he's gone. So they bring in this guy. His name's Sammy Hagar. Okay? Sammy Hagar is like the, the third from the, the left there. He's, the, he's got the, the Gene Wilder fro going on like that. Okay? Yeah, I can't drive 55. No? Yeah. All right. All right. All right. So... That was on his own. Then, then he you know, plays with Van Halen. They sell tons more albums with Sammy Hagar. Their fan base grows. They're playing arenas still. They're just making tons of money. Sammy Hagar and everybody in Van Halen, urgh, they fight again. Sammy's gone. So then they start this new thing. They got a guy named Gary Sharon. He's one album with the band called Extreme, if you guys remember who. More than words is all I have. Whatever. One album, we try to forget him because it's just, just bad days. Okay, It's just bad days in the history of Van Halen. Then you have this thing with Sammy and David and Sammy and David, and eventually you have the second coming of David Lee Roth. All right? So this is, this is today. All right? David Lee Roth's second one from the left there. He's going bald and the hair's gone kind of thing. But that's, there he is. Now, you have 
this, this whole rivalry now that has grown up because you have, well, early David, late David. Sammy, Sammy, what, what about Sammy? Well, we sold more albums with Sammy than anybody else. It's, it's got to be Sammy Hagar. And so you have these rabid Van Halen fans going, no, it's Sammy Hagar. No, it's David Lee Roth. No, it's Sammy Hagar. You know the way you solve this? You kill David Lee Roth. <laughs> I'm down. Save and I'm down with that. That's, that's what happens. Uh, go to verse 26. They came to John and said to him, okay, who's better? They say, Sammy or David? They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Their favorite's popularity is decreasing. What's going on with that? Augustine said it like this. John baptized, Christ baptized. Those who came to John, he sent to Jesus to be baptized. But those who were baptized by Christ were not sent to John. So John's disciples are asking, you know, what's going on? You've got to stop sending people to Jesus. Nobody's coming to you. And, you know, you're Sammy. You know, you've you got to come on. And, he's, and they're very upset about this. And John's response to this shows what type of person John was. It's, it's a wonderful response. Verse 27. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. Now once again, there's this metaphor. that It's a universal one of a wedding. In this, it's a Jewish wedding. Now weddings are beautiful occasions, right? Who doesn't love a good wedding, right? Woo, weddings are wonderful. Receptions are even better. Just letting you know how that goes. Weddings are great opportunities for people who have been married to look back and say, oh, I remember our wedding day. It's for people who want to get married and haven't. They get to look forward to this and be like, oh, that's great. You know, it's for some people it's like, oh, I remember this day. Oh, you know, it's, we all get to remember it at some point. It intrigues me how men and women view weddings so much differently. Little girls, from the, from the time they are two years old, plan their wedding. It's like, oh, I'm going to get married, and he's going to look like this, and they pull their dog over, sit, you're the pastor, and I'm going to go, you know, and they bring their dog up, because that's usually what we look like when we do weddings. Like, what? You're just totally up. Do I get a treat? Do I get a treat? And, you know, put the doll here, and it's like, okay, now we're going to do the wedding. And, and they plan this, and they have this idea of what they want their wedding to look like. I was talking to a lady in first service, and she goes, she does them at the courthouse. She comes up to me, and she goes, you know, it's just a civil ceremony at the, at the courthouse, and I'm standing there. She goes, and I'm still bawling when people are getting married. It's like, do you, do you? Yes. It's just like, <laughs> So these little, they, they, they plan like this wedding day, but none of them start off thinking they want multiple, multiple failed marriages so they can have multiple wedding days. They just want one good wedding that makes all their friends jealous and everybody cry, and, and it's wonderful. Jewish weddings were the same type of thing. It, it had this deep, deep connotation where you want this, this one good wedding. Jewish weddings, it was representative also, not just of the couple, but of God making a covenant between his people and him that, that we are a representative of his bride. He wants to have this intimacy and relationship with us. And these are the words that he used in Exodus chapter 6. God, through Moses, makes four promises. He says this to Israel. I will watch over you. He says, I will take you out. I will rescue or redeem you. And he says, I will take you with me. This is language a Hebrew groom would make to his bride. I will come for you. I will redeem you. I will watch over you. I will take you with me. In the first century, generally a young woman, we married in her early teens, 13 or 14 years old. 
it become known that she was of age, and her father would begin listening to other fathers saying, okay, my son would like to marry your daughter. The fathers agreed on terms in a marriage. Uh, there would be the celebration. The couple would get together to announce their engagement. And at this celebration, the groom would offer the young girl a cup of wine. She doesn't have to take it. But if she does take the cup of wine and drinks from it, then that means they're engaged. But on top of this, they aren't married yet. There's still a few things that have to happen in this. Something has to be built. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. Leave your finger in chapter 3 so you can go back. But turn to John chapter 14. So the groom goes home, and he begins to build in addition to his family's home. Okay? This is where the bride and him will start their new family together. And so he works, and he works, and he works to build this thing that they can call home. And this is the interesting part. He doesn't know when he's going to be done. He just builds and builds and builds and builds, but his father only has the final say when it's done and when it's ready. And so his father comes and the father periodically inspects what's going on. He looks at his work, you know, and the son is building this thing, so it properly honors his new bride. In John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says these words, In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. These are words a groom would speak to his bride. I am going to do this, and I will come back for you. Don't worry. It's wedding language. So the father in this has some considerations as well. If he has many sons, they've probably all built many additions onto his house, and this house is getting pretty large at this point. There's many rooms in it. This, this type of house is called an insula. It's, it's a large multifamily dwelling. If the father had built an addition onto his father's house, then all of a sudden it's several generations later, and it's pretty darn big. So the future bride, you know, she's waiting at home and she doesn't know when the work's going to be done. So she's preparing herself and waiting. She doesn't know when. When the day comes, the father inspects the work and he says, okay, it's good. You can go get her. So the son, or more typically what would happen is the son would get his best friend or his best man. And that guy would get some friends and they would go to get this girl. Now, when they get to the town, how in the world do they know which girl they're supposed to get? This is what happens. In, in Matthew 25, you, you see this story. And what happens is it talks about these virgins who are awaiting the bridegroom, and they, and they have the, these cups of oil, these lamps of oil. Some are smart, some are foolish. The smart ones have extra oil because they don't know when he's coming. And what you would do in this culture is this girl would put a lamp, and she'd light it in her window. And it would burn and burn and burn until she was come, and they came and got her. And it would burn. She is wise girl who allows the drink. So they would come, and they, oh, that's the window. They would find the girl. They would take the girl and her family, and they make this big procession back to the groom's house. They would present the bride to her groom, the bridegroom, and then the party and the festivities would start. It's a beautiful story. Verse 27, chapter 3. To this John replied, A man can receive only what he is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. John knows what he is called to do. The church, God's people, are symbolic of the bride of Christ. It was John's job to get them and present that bride to Jesus. This is why John says, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. I am not the Messiah. I am a voice. Make straight the paths of the Lord. And he takes this pure, unblemished, safe bride and presents it to his best friend. Verse 29, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. I must become, he must become greater and I must become less. 
See, what would have happened if John tried to keep the bride for himself? You know, if he didn't proclaim Jesus or point people to Jesus or send people after Jesus, he would not have been the friend of the groom that he claimed to be because he would have defiled the bride. You guys know the story of King Arthur? Okay. King Arthur, he has this best friend. His name's Lancelot. And Lancelot's job was, was to watch over Arthur's family. And so you now have the story of Guinevere and Lancelot, who is Guinevere's King Arthur's bride. Instead of watching over his family, Lancelot comes and he, and he commits adultery with Guinevere. He defiles not only his friendship with the king, but also with the bride. It goes down in literature as like one of the saddest stories ever because it was like, oh, this is great. And, oh, betrayal. That's not John. That is not John. He tells his disciples, I am simply the best man. He is God. He is the groom for the bride. He must become greater. I must become less. John presented the bride to the groom and now stands back and he allows the groom the spotlight because Jesus deserves the spotlight. He deserves all of the glory. And this makes me wonder about us, about you and I. Do we do what John did? Could we do what John did? You know, do we do that in our, in our own life today? Do I point to me or do I point to Jesus? Do you point to you or do you point to Jesus? Do you want people to think you're great? And wonderful. Do you want people to think Jesus is great and wonderful? Do you want people to think you're perfect? Do you want people to think Jesus is perfect? I mean, that's, that's the question. Because all too often, we play Lancelot in our relationship with Christ and not John. And we defile the name of his bride in the world when we make things about us and not about him. And when, we, when people think that church is about me coming and getting something and not us coming together to corporately worship who Christ is and give him the glory and the honor, we become Lancelot and not John. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is about Jesus. That's where our eyes belong. John the disciple gets this, and so does John the baptizer. And what happens now is John the disciple ties in the last of this with what we looked at last week. Um, this is verse 31. He says this, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. Jesus is God. John is not. Okay? And then he reflects back to verse 13. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He tells us again that Jesus knows what he's talking about. Uh, the truth that Jesus knows is different than the truth that we often think. Verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. See, John declares here in no uncertain terms that one, that Jesus came from heaven and he spoke with a higher authority than that of earth. Two, that he spoke from observation, not from theory. He knows it because he is God. Three, that Jesus spoke the words of God, and that four, the Father's love had caused him to endow the Son with complete authority to execute his purpose. These qualities make Jesus superior in every way to John the Baptist. Though John had a very divinely uh, set purpose in doing what he did, but John spoke as one from the earth. The Son, however, is not merely the messenger of God. He was God, the revealed object of faith. I mean, John the baptizer, 
And John the disciple make a dividing line. He says, the person who believes in the Son has eternal life. The person who does not will not enter or possess that life. This is verse 36, and this is how he ends the chapter. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. This is the only passage in John's gospel and all of John's letters where this word for wrath is actually used. And the word, it isn't like a sudden gust of anger or passion, like, oh, you smacked my car in the parking lot, and oh, I'm going to get out my bat and smack in your headlights. That's not what that means. This This is a settled fortitude. It is a a displeasure of God against sin because God is not easily angered nor is God vindictive, but by his very nature, he is unalterably committed to and opposing and judging all sin. And so it's a settled fortitude that this is what will happen. That's why he sets it out. We, I think it's, we're this bride. You know, the church is called the bride of Christ. We are called to also take and present this bride to Christ being unblemished. And yet so often we blemish the bride with our actions and our attitudes and and how we live and how we interact with other people who don't even know him. We live in sin. The wrath of God is directed towards sin. And so what happens with that? God is committed to save us. Verse 16, where we looked at last week, it says, For God so loved the world. I told you last week, the world is this screwed up mess. It is the enemy of God. Those are John's words. But God loves them. And those who God saves, he, he calls and changes and sends us into the world so that the Father's hand can be seen by everybody we come into contact with. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love heals us. God's love renews us. God's love restores us. God's love encourages us. God's love comforts us. God loves us because he is good, not because we are good. And this typically becomes the issue for us. He is good. We are not. We can't trust in our own goodness because we are not good. Little dumb things make us mad. Think about the last fight you had with your spouse, your, your best friend, and you walk away going, that was stupid. Why do we even argue about that? You know, how you say the word tomato? You know, why do we argue about stupid stuff like that? You know, oh, you fell asleep watching TV. Oh, I'm so mad at you. It's like, what? What does it deal with that? Because we are not good, but he is. We are called to be his bride. In the sense, Jesus has promised to us, I will watch over you. I will take you out. I will redeem you. I will take you with me. God has promised these things to you and I. The question is, how do we present ourselves to him? I mean, our salvation is not about works. We are saved by grace, once again, because God is good and we are not. But God then takes and he wants to change his people so they live in the world in a way that the world is touched with the love of God, so they know who he is. I mean, do we seek our own glory, or do we seek to exalt and worship Jesus? Do we exalt and worship anything other than Jesus in our life? You know, what do we allow in our lives that fight against Christ's place of eminency in our life? What do we allow there that fights against that daily? Because too often we fight against Christ for this thing. We need to fight this thing and allow Christ to be who he's supposed to be. We are called people who step into the light, who believe that Jesus speaks the words of God and let Jesus have the center stage in us. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. We are in all sense the bride and the best man, like I said. And we, as the best man, 
need to present the people around us as best we can to Christ and say, this is who Jesus is. The best man is a representative of that bridegroom. And so we need to be representative saying, this is who God is. This. And then we also, as the bride, present ourselves to him. It's, it's a wonderful and amazing concept. I know sometimes guys have problems with it going, I'm not a girl, I'm not a bride. You know, it's okay. It's, it's the picture of intimacy. The picture that God longs to have this relationship with you and I. I mean, and may we not only present ourselves, but the people we come into contact with to him in this way. It's one of the reasons why we take communion every single week. Because it helps us redirect and refocus our lives from how they've been so inwardly focused and begin to focus it back outwards to, a way to who he is. And we take the, the cracker and we break it and it represents Christ's body being broken for us and we dip it in the wine of the grape juice representing his blood that was shed for us. Our bridegroom that came and died and rose for us to restore us to life. And we worship God through prayer. I mean, there's elders going to be in the back of the room and if you guys are like, man, I want to be the best man or I want to present myself to Christ. You know what? Pray with them. Pray with them. They would love to pray with you. And we, we worship God by, by giving. There's offering boxes on the side of the wall in the back of the room. Christ gave to us. We give back. And we worship God through songs. The band's going to come. And they, we sing songs of redemption and, and hope and, and that we long to be that person that God calls us to be. And then we worship God through fellowship. We're hopefully, I, I know the room's not that big and you're all kind of cramped in and that's good for you. But what happens in that is we get up and you meet other people. You talk to other people. You get to know other people because God has restored relationship with us so we can have a relationship with other people. And that relationship with other people isn't supposed to just stay in this room. It's supposed to go where you get up out of this room and you go to other, and every person you come into contact with, you are on mission. Not to stand on top of your desk at work and go, repent sinners. But to go into the place where you work and just love people. Tell them to live in such a way that they're like, man, what's different about you? I love Jesus. That's different? Yeah, because those who claim to love Jesus usually don't live that much different. And we need to live different. People need to see that we are not just the right, that we are also the best man. And we long to present ourselves and the people we come into contact with to him. Would you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, uh, I ask that you would, again, take us like you do every week and humble our hearts before you so that we are those who rest in who you've called us to be. That our souls don't have to fret all the time, but we can simply know that you are the God who has saved us. But in that resting in you, I ask that we do not become lazy, but that we become people who take your message, not really in any other way, but living, speaking truth, offering your hands of friendship to those around us. Help us to be those who present your bride to you the way it needs to be presented to hear your voice and to live how you've called us to live. Amen.